0: Let's open up our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. If you are navigating over there on an electronic device, your cell phone or some kind of tablet, uh, you might want to make sure your sound is turned off so I don't have to make fun of you. Jeremiah is told to take a jar from the potter's house and break it in the presence of the elders and the priests of Judah as a sign of the destruction prophesied against the nation. The title of our message, Jar Jar Breaks. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I'd love to get together with the church, with believers who are called out of the world to be saints into your presence, the set-apart ones. I'm sure, Lord, there's a few non-believers here. Maybe they don't even know yet, Lord, that they're not a believer in Jesus Christ. They believe in God, they believe in you, but they've never made a commitment to you, personal commitment to you, never asked you really to forgive them their sins, never been born again. Nevertheless, Lord, we're here this morning as the church meeting in your name expecting your presence. And you've given us this particular text to wrestle with, to get into, to listen to, and to have our ears open to. And so I pray, Lord, that it would be a time valuably spent waiting upon you so that we would understand, Lord, that we've been spoken to by the living God that we've been loved and accepted and forgiven by the Son of God who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is coming again. Encourage us and challenge us, Lord, from the word, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said amen. Ever ask the question, why Russell Stover, why? I'm pretty sure it's Russell Stover who markets boxes of chocolates that don't label the individual pieces. You never know what you're biting into. The filling could be something you really like, caramel. Or, like me, it could be coconut. Now, you may like chocolate-covered coconut, but it's disgusting to me. Same thing with nougat. Just the name is disgusting. It might not be so bad if it had a better name, but what is nougat? It sounds like, well, I don't want to tell you what it sounds like. It's disgusting. When I was a kid, those boxes of candy... Round Christmas time usually, they would eventually all be filled with chocolates that had one small bite taken out of them. <laughs> and so you'd go to the, wherever it was hanging out, I think we probably kept it in the refrigerator, and you'd pop the top off of that thing, and you'd look in there and almost every piece of chocolate had a bite taken out of it, where myself or one of my brothers tested it as it were, and you look at it and you think, what is that white stuff in there? And if it's not cream filling, it was coconut or something like that. And we, because we practiced sustainability back when, we would put that back just in case somebody finally thought, all right, I'm desperate enough to do that. Uh, And eventually, you know, you just eat the chocolate around the center and spit out the rest of it. So it was just kind of a yucky thing. Now, filling is going to... (laughs) Filling is going to be our theme this morning as we work through chapter 19 of Jeremiah. The prophet was told to take a water jar made on the potter's wheel to Tophet in the Valley of Hinnom and then break it as a symbol of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and its temple at the hands of the Babylonians. Before Jeremiah breaks the jar, it was full and he poured out its contents. Gives us opportunity to think about ourselves as God's vessels or jars and what it is we are filled with. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you must choose your filling, and number two, God will choose your spilling. Number one, you are God's precious jar, choose your filling, verses one and two. So for Jeremiah, it was another day, another drama. Earlier in his prophetic career, he had used a linen belt to illustrate God's relationship with the nation of Judah, Then he was sent down to the potter's house to compare God's work with nations to that of a potter working with clay. And so like many other Old Testament prophets before him, he used props or he had illustrations uh, that he was uh, uh, utilizing uh, in order to get God's message across. And so he's once again sent to act out the word of God. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen flask, take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests, and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. Jeremiah was told by the Lord to purchase what the New King James Version calls a flask. It's a potter's earthenware jar. Scholars say it was of a particular style made to hold several ounces of water with a narrow neck for pouring out. So it would have a larger, more bulbous uh, bottom, and then it would come into a narrow neck so that it could easily pour out the liquid, normally water. It strikes me that God did not give Jeremiah the message until he went to the location with the jar. One of the things we've been learning from Jeremiah just as a, an individual and as a, a, a child of God is that sometimes you need to go somewhere, you need to be somewhere in order for God to give you his message, in order for God to speak to you. He can speak to you anywhere at any time, but he delights to invite you places and then reveal himself to you there in new and exciting ways. It's just part of who God is. We like to go, uh, for example, on vacation or on dates or have date nights or things like that. And God says, I'm, I like that. And, and so I, there's some places I want you to go from time to time. Some on a regular basis, some on an irregular basis. And uh, I might talk to you in a special way at those places. I think our gatherings together as the church are like that. You don't have to be at a meeting of the church in order for God to speak to you. He has, however, encouraged us to not forsake assembling of ourselves together, especially as we're living in the last days. He says, but get together even more often. He wants to speak to his church and he does it in various ways as we gather together. So it's not to put a burden on, there's a couple of ways to approach you know, people in terms of church attendance. And one is to really burden people and to you know, make people feel bad that they don't come to church. And I'm not saying that's even wrong. You probably should feel bad if you're not coming to church on a regular basis, but I would much rather report to you and tell you that God wants to meet with you. God, you know, sent you a message in his word and says, I wanna meet with you on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or whenever it is that the church gathers together and I wanna talk to you in a very special way through the word of God. Uh, you know, if you got a telephone call later this afternoon or a text then God said, hey, meet me at Starbucks. He'd say, oh yeah, no problem. I gotta clear my schedule. God's gonna be at Starbucks. Now well, we know he wouldn't go there. But anyway, um, Maybe a, you know, Rebecca's coffee shop in Lamore is probably where he'd go. But anyway, uh, you know, you would clear your schedule, and so God says, "Yeah, that—not that, to put a burden on you, but do you want to hear from me? I could talk to you anywhere, anytime, and I do that. But I also really I like to talk to you at church. I like to talk to you when the church is gathered together in various different ways." Now, something else to encourage us in Jeremiah's assignment is that the Lord really can give us things to say spontaneously. Don't get me wrong, I think we need to be prepared, especially when we are called upon to preach or teach God's word. There are circles that believe it's more spiritual to be totally unprepared and to just walk around with no preparation, no study, uh, and just say whatever comes to mind. I've sat through a lot of Bible studies like that. And, you know, it was before the day of cell phones that had, or smartphones, where you could do something else while you were listening because it was so bad. And I mean, it's just, it's painful. And so, you know, I'm not saying that we don't need to be prepared, but no matter our preparation, we need to be open to God's immediate leading. We need to believe by faith God will give us things to say. A lot of times, just not so much delivering a Bible study, but just out in the world, a situation will come up at work or at home or in the neighborhood where you think, wow, I have an opportunity here maybe to say something about God. I wish I knew what to say. I wish I was prepared for this. And you have to know that God has given you something to say. And if you'll just start talking, uh, you'll find that the Lord will speak through you. Don't worry so much about preparation or having everything down at those moments. And so this is, you know, this is pretty, you know, Jeremiah is, he's a big time prophet. He's one of the big time major prophets. He's not some minor prophet. He's a major prophet. And God says, I want you to get this earthen jar and just go down where I tell you to go. And I'm going to tell you what to say. And yeah, that takes a lot of obedience for the Lord to, uh, or for a person to do that. And maybe God would speak to you one day, one morning, say, hey, why don't you just go over here? and believe that he's gonna show you something or give you something to say, just follow that leading. Now, we're going to see in verse seven, we'll get there, a play on words that tells us the jar was filled with liquid. We assume water, but that's not important. Before he breaks the jar, he's gonna pour out its contents. Now, while these verses are obviously about the specific judgment that was coming upon Judah, the imagery of a jar filled with water is applicable to believers at all times. We don't want to press it too far, but we can make application to ourselves from that general imagery. If we are jars of clay, and like this narrow-necked water jar, we are meant to be filled. The question to ask then is, what am I filled with there's an insightful verse in the new testament tells me what i'm supposed to be filled with at the very end of ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 it says these are the final words it says that you may be filled with all the fullness of god now right away my mind goes to thinking about what i must do to be filled with all the fullness of god that's not a bad thing to think about A little later in that same book of Ephesians, you read, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's chapter five, verse 18, famous verse. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's talking to Christians who already are born again. You already have the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, now, you who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. And the tense, I'm told, is literally, go on being filled with the Spirit And it definitely indicates a choice on our part. We are to choose those things that are consistent with obedience to God that will contribute to being spiritual and not carnal. And I am to go on being constantly filled with the Holy Spirit who already indwells me. For example, there's a parallel passage in the book of Colossians, there's some Sections in Colossians that are very similar to Ephesians. And in that passage, it indicates that if I want to go on being filled with the Spirit, I need to go on being filled with the Word of God. It, it almost makes them corollaries. Be being filled with the Spirit, be being filled with the Word of God. Now, that's not the only thing or, or the only way that I'm filled with the Spirit just by you know reading God's Word, but it's, it's one of many ways that tells me that I should contribute to being filled with the Spirit by doing things that are spiritual. The filling of God's Spirit is negatively compared to being drunk on alcohol. Now, even if you've never been drunk, uh, you have seen drunks and you know what alcohol does to a person, we're told not to be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but rather to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to actively, daily, moment by moment, choose thoughts and activities that contribute to being spirit-filled and to therefore be influenced by the indwelling spirit. Conversely, we are not to do things that would quench the spirit. We're not to resist him or to grieve him, but we are to yield to him. And so that's, that's the Christian life. I'm born again And then I am to be filled with the spirit of God as I yield to him and take in uh, spiritual things and make spiritual decisions. Now, there's something else though I wanna say about our being filled, which isn't normally talked about. And it's right there ahead of the words that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The entire verse, Ephesians um, 3.19, reads like this. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Amplified Bible translates the first part of that verse this way. It says, that you may really come to know practically through experience for yourself the love of Christ, which far surpasses mere knowledge without experience. And so the translators of the Amplified Version trying to give you the true sense of those words in the Greek language say that Paul was saying you have to experience the love of God as a personal experience in order to be truly filled with all the fullness of God. I think most importantly, being filled with all the fullness of God comes from a genuine realization of just how much God loves you. You are deeply loved by God, who while you were yet a sinner, came as God in human flesh and gave his life for you. You can do all the devotions you want, and you should. You can pray all the time without ceasing, and you should. You can attend every meeting of the church, and you probably should. But unless you are certain of the passionate, extravagant love God has for you, your own efforts cannot guarantee you will be filled with all his fullness. You must also have an experiential knowledge of his love. In fact, you can do all of those things and not love God in this way and not be experiencing his love because that's the example we have of the church of Ephesus in the book of the Revelation. They were filled with Bible-filled, doctrine-filled, devotion-keeping Christians. And Jesus said, I like all that. That's good, that's great. But that alone isn't enough to keep you filled with all the fullness of God. He says, because there's something missing. You guys have left your first love for me. You're no longer really passionate about me. And he said, "I, I have this against you, and if you don't deal with this, you're not going to have much of a witness. I'm going to have to take your candlestick away, your witness away, because Christianity isn't just a mechanical doing of things, it's a being, a person, that is in love with Jesus Christ, realizing his love for you. And so we have to have this experiential knowledge. What's the first thing we question when some trouble comes our way? Well, I think almost universally, if you're like me, the first thing we question is the love of God. It's certainly the first thing non-believers question after every tragedy. Anything that rises to you know, the upper fold of the newspaper on page one that's a tragedy, a natural disaster, or even uh, something perpetrated by another human being or terrorists or whatever on somebody you hear the cry from people, where was God? Why doesn't God do something? How could a God of love allow this? It's contributed to the understanding that, you know, either God is unloving or he's not powerful enough to do anything, and that's the general opinion that people have of God outside of Christianity. Within Christianity, we have our own doubts about God's love when something tragic comes into our lives. God, I thought you loved me. And, and you see what's happening in my life. How, how is this love? But you know, as you read the Bible and as you draw close to the Lord, it is precisely at the point of affliction or suffering or trial that we immediately question God's love, but that is in fact when we really come to know practically through experience for ourselves the love of Christ. It is in the midst of that pain and that sorrow and that suffering that his love Becomes the most real. It is then he can become our refuge and our strength, our shield and our exceeding great reward. It is then that we learn he will never leave us or forsake us. It is then that his presence is made known in power. It is precisely during those times when we are prone to question his love that his love is the most profound. Paul has a long section at the end of Romans 8 where he says basically what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he lists some things and you think, wow, I don't want to go through any of those things. They're awful. And, the, and Paul, he says, yeah, here's what's coming down the pike, like a runaway train, like an avalanche. Like it's, it's just gaining ground all the time. It's coming, it's going to slam you. Things that are natural, things that are unnatural, things that are supernatural are going to steamroller your life and you're going to learn by experience that nothing can separate you from this one thing, the love of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, there are times when we all have to get Jobian where Job had to learn for himself by experience the love of God, that though God even would slay him, he would yet trust him because that love is the most precious, personal, wonderful thing anybody could ever experience. Oh, how he loves you and me. All I can say is let his love fill you that you may be filled with all his fullness as his jar. Do everything you're supposed to do as a child of God, remembering never to leave your first love. Now, the rest of the chapter, God's going to choose your spilling. Let's see what that means. Back to the 6th century, Jeremiah had a drama to act out. Verse 3, say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place and whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents, they have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Jeremiah was despised by these people, but there was still an authority about him that compelled them to follow him to Tophet. Very interesting. Among the many reasons God was going to judge them as a nation was the fact they had adopted the practice of child sacrifice, and it was in that very place that Jeremiah was taking them that children were sacrificed to Baal. Verse six, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. It seems that Tophet was a particular site in the valley. Some of the language guys suggest the meaning of Tophet is drum and that the site was called that because drums would be beaten loudly as part of the ritual sacrifice of children, presumably to help drown out their screams. You know, not to minimize the, the horror of this, but any, any decent movie where there's natives that are about to eat people or or do something terrible. There's always a lot of drumming, isn't? I mean that it, there's just something about you know and stuff. And then when that drumming stops, it's on like Donkey Kong. I mean it's it's over you're gonna be eaten or killed or burned or something bad is gonna happen. And so that's kind of one possible meaning of Tophet. Now, when King Josiah discovered God's law and forced reforms upon the people, he turned Tophet and the Valley of Hinnom into a garbage dump. We recognize this place in the New Testament by its Greek name, Gehenna, or Gehenna. It's your first Greek lesson if you're gonna to go to the class that we're offering. But anyway, That's the extent of my Greek. Uh, Since it was a garbage dump with fires continually burning, it became a symbol of the eternal fires of hell. It became another kind of a metaphor for what hell is like, although hell is gonna be a lot different and a lot worse than the Kings County dump. Uh, You you know, it's... I don't want to go into that. Jeremiah was at the potsherd gate, so-called because the potters would use that gate to enter Hinnom to dump their useless shards of clay from broken vessels, their trash, as it were. Jeremiah tells the people it will be renamed the Valley of Slaughter, and that's because multitudes would be slaughtered there when the Babylonian armies came, sieged, and invaded, and broke through the walls of Jerusalem. Verse seven, and I will make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heavens and for the beasts of the earth. There's a pivotal play on words we miss in the English translation. The Hebrew word translated flask or jar is, I would pronounce it bakboah, bakboah, The word in verse seven translated make void is bakok, bakok. It literally means to empty or to pour out. The idea being conveyed by this very careful use of words is that at this point in his message, Jeremiah bach-acht, the bach-boah. In other words, he poured out the contents of the jar onto the ground to symbolize Judah being poured out. And so those of you who have ever been in a play or drama or appreciate this, this is a a dramatic moment. Jeremiah is giving this message and he's got the vessel and they're wondering what he's gonna do and he pours out the water in that before he breaks it, very important. He would break the jar, but only after this pouring out. Notice what he poured out. Symbolically, he poured out, it says, the council of Judah and Jerusalem. That's an unusual filling, is it not? I mean, he was pouring out water, but he said this is the council of Jerusalem and Judah. It revealed, as it were, the true contents of the jar of Judah as a people, While they ought to have been filled with the things of God, they were filled instead with their own counsel, with their own wisdom, with the designs and the desires and the devices of their own wicked hearts. That's what was really in Judah. Not the knowledge of the living God, not the spirit of the living God or anything like that, but their own wicked hearts. Hold on to that thought for a little later. Verse eight, I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its plagues. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. Siege warfare was horrific. The surrounding enemy armies cut off all supplies. After months or years, stores of supplies within the city would run out. Once your supplies, your food was gone, you were desperate. People often resorted to cannibalism, which meant eating the flesh of the deceased. And so people would die, and then since there was no food, they would eat the carcasses of their deceased relatives and friends. Remember, God was still warning them. It was too late for the nation to be spared. God said, yeah, it's over, I am taking the nation captive. But individual Jews could yet repent and return to the Lord. When Joshua came into the promised land the first time to conquer with the, um, the um, directive from God, kill everybody, Rahab understood that she could still be saved and she was saved. The Gibeonites understood they could be saved, and they were saved. And so God says, I'm done with Israel as a nation right now in terms of repentance. I'm bringing you guys to Babylon, but individual Jews could still respond to this message. Verse 10, then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. This was the final movement of this dramatic illustration. Timing was everything as Jeremiah now brought home the conclusion. You know, sometimes timing is important. Sometimes drama can really minister to people. Uh, you want, if you're doing something for the Lord, that's why it's important to do it as well as you can so that it can have an impact. I mean, you want things to have uh, the impact God intends. You know, you, you can't go crazy. I mean, things, you know, go wrong in the world and, you know, you can't always get the impact. you want. But you should try your hardest to do the best you can be. You don't want to be lame when God has given you a message. Verse 11, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, even so I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again, and they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no place to bury. Thus I will do to this place, says the Lord and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet, and the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet, because of all the houses on whose roofs they have burned incense to the host of heaven and poured out drink offerings to other gods. The people would not turn from their idolatry, including child sacrifice at Tophet, so God would allow them to be killed at Tophet. Justice would prevail. I'd rather not get the justice I deserve. I thank God for His mercy. I don't want justice. I don't want God to be fair with me. I want God to be merciful with me, a sinner. Verse 14 and 15 are gonna introduce a different illustration at a different location. Jeremiah returns to the temple, tells the people they are stiff-necked, which is a comparison to disobedient oxen. So it really belongs, I think, I mean, I'm not you know, trying to rewrite the Old Testament, but it it belongs thematically with chapter 20, so we'll look at it then. God was going to break Judah as a nation the way Jeremiah broke the jar. They were useless as his vessel, holding only their own hearts, evil counsels, and desires instead of his love and grace. In Babylon, they would repent and return to the Lord. Now, I ask you to hold a thought from verse seven. It was the fact that they were poured out. We could say they were spilled, but remembering it was done on purpose at God's command. Does God ever spill you? Why he does it all the time. The apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. Of course, he was talking about his impending beheading at the hands of Caesar Nero. But Paul had already poured out his life several times before. He'd been beaten multiple times, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked a bunch, imprisoned several times. He'd been poured out emotionally as well. In verse 16 of the same chapter where he talks about being poured out, he says, at my first defense, nobody even came to support me, everyone deserted me. In another place, he talked about the care of the churches that pressed upon him all the time. And so Paul, I think, would say that he constantly felt felt like his life was being poured out of him. His entire ministry was like a drink offering being poured out to the Lord. In Philippians 2.17, he would say, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, to be technical, Jeremiah was not pouring out a drink offering. I don't want to be guilty of misusing his illustration, but in a gigantically broad sense, God pours into us so that we can be poured out. And so if you're just looking at the vessel, we're like that vessel holding something. We are God's vessel that he wants to pour out. He wants to constantly be pouring out our lives for the ministry of others. Titus 3.6 describes God as pouring out his spirit upon us. Romans 5.5, 5, we're told that God, quote, has poured out his love into our hearts. So there is a pouring in by God and a pouring out as we walk with him. It's a great illustration of the Christian life filled to overflowing. Jesus in another place using a different illustration said the rivers of living water would be coming through you. And so there's a, a filling and an outflow. Two questions come to mind. First, are you willing to be poured out for God? We're definitely talking sacrifice. Since you are a vessel made by God, you were made to contain something in order to pour it out, ministering to others. There is to be an outflow. But we have to cooperate with that. We, um, you know, God wants to spill us, but we don't have to be spilled. We can say no to God. I came across the following quote. It puts what I'm saying about outflow into a more modern illustration that we can probably relate better to. The author writes and he says, There's a saying in sports that says, Leave it all on the field or the court, meaning give the game all of yourself or every bit of your strength and effort. This is how we must treat the Lord's work. Don't leave this life full of strength, substance, and unused potential. Leave it on the spiritual battlefield. Pour out your life now. We like sports metaphors, don't we? Give 110%, 110% all the time. Left it all out on the field. Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But we understand that. I mean, that's a metaphor. They went out and they gave it their all. They played their hearts out. All their talent, all their ability, all their everything, they left it on the field. And so this is what we're being exhorted to do in this outflow illustration. God says, I'm gonna keep pouring into you. Leave it all on the battlefield. Your life is a vapor, it appears for a moment. Who knows when I'm gonna gather you home. You don't have time to be hoarding anything, hanging on to anything, waiting for anything. You need to leave it all out on the battlefield today and every day and believe that I will fill you tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? So that's question number one. Question number two, if God were to spill you, what would pour out from you? we saw that the people of Judah were filled with their own ungodly wisdom, the things of the world. The pouring out revealed what they were filling up on and it was just junk. In the documentary, Super Size Me, Morgan Spurlock ate only at McDonald's for a month. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He gained nearly 25 pounds, experienced a 13% body mass increase. His cholesterol level ballooned to 230. He experienced mood swings, sexual dysfunction, and fat accumulation in his liver. He nearly died from eating at McDonald's. And whenever they would say, do you want that supersized? He would say yes. That was part of the experiment. And he would have to at least try to eat everything. Took Spurlock 14 months to lose the weight gained from his experiment. My favorite parts are when he would barf trying to eat all the supersized meals. There were times he just couldn't eat it. It was just so much food. What we take in matters even more spiritually. I'm not just talking about things like TV and movies and other entertainments. I'm talking more about the subtle ways the world and its system seeks to influence our thinking to alter our worldview to be more secular and less Christ-centered, or at least to be unbiblical. So there's a whole, I mean, we could talk all day about movies and TV and all that kind of, I mean, and there's a place for that. Obviously, you know, we don't wanna take in carnal, you know, things and all that, but there's a more subtle thing, and that is just the world system which tries to get us to do what Satan did in the Garden of Eden where he said, has God really said that? How do you know God really said that? It seems like it says that, but how, Maybe it doesn't say that. And people start to listen to the dictates of their own evil heart. They start to deceive themselves until they, and they get to a point where you and I, if we're walking with the Lord, if we're, you know, not that we're not sinners, but we're sinners that are walking with the Lord and confessing sin and all of that, we look at what they're doing and we say, man, that is just sin, and they look back and say, Well, has God really said that? And you say, Yeah, yeah, He has. And they say, Yeah, I, I don't think so. Now, I think there's another interpretation of that. Or it doesn't apply to me right now. Or maybe that's true, but at the end of this, I'll repent and start walking with God again. And you think, What? And some of you, and, you know, if you've ever been backslidden, you know what I'm talking about. You can talk yourself into anything. And so I don't really care. I mean, I do, but I, I'm not just gonna talk about with people, hey, what movie did you see this afternoon? Oh, you carnal, fleshly sinner. Garbage in, garbage out. You're gonna, you're gonna go to hell if you see that movie. What's more interesting is how you actually think about the word of God. Are you submitted to the word of God or are you ready to be submitted to your own evil heart and its own evil desire so that if I put in front of you a Bible verse that's, that's totally black and white. And you're like, "Hmm, yeah, 10 minutes ago, I would have agreed with you. But now I'm filled with my own counsel and my own wisdom. And see, sometimes people get poured out that way too. What they're doing gets poured out and you see what they've been filling themselves up with. Eventually our circumstances... Whether blessings or buffetings cause us to be spilled out and then everyone sees what it is. Look back at the spills in your life or maybe you're being spilled out right now. What is it that's being poured out? Is it carnal and fleshly and worldly? Or is it godliness with contentment, trusting the Lord to keep on pouring his love into your heart so that you can have the fullness of God? Let's pray.